You're listening to In the Arena Podcast Season 1, where we sit down to have some unscripted, off-the-cuff conversations with six leaders who at one time held the office of General Overseer of the Church of God Cleveland. I'm your producer, Brian Lindsay. Your host will be none other than my good friend, Buck Marshall. We hope you enjoy this episode where we sit down with Dr. Lamar Vest. Do you care to just, uh, we were off air, you made a statement about good ideas not always trickling down. Yeah. That well, was, actually, when I was serving as a, an, in the youth and CE department, yeah. uh, we, we actually had a national youth convention scheduled for Lookout Mountain. And uh, it was pathetic. It was about a little over 100 that attended. And then there was a local church at North Cleveland, yeah. uh, a, a church member. I remember her name. In fact, I preached her funeral, Barbara Teaster, took her sons and a group of teenagers uh, to do a youth meeting. And they had more people than we had in the national meeting. Well, Tommy Madden was the, uh, the director, uh, the youth director of the of North Cleveland yeah. Youth Ministries. And he took it over and built it into what it is today. And so when we got ready to have another national youth convention, I said, no way. You know, there's a local church youth pastor who's doing yeah. more because he joined with several youth pastors in the area. Right. And they sort of got their youth together. And so I said, okay, we're just going to give them the opportunity. We'll give them the umbrella. We'll, we'll help provide the finances. No, no need to recreate the There's wheel. no need to recreate what's going on and doing a better job. And it, all, it fit right into the philosophy that I've always worked by is that good ideas don't always trickle down. Most good ideas bubble up. So yeah. good leadership is going to be paying attention to what's going on in that local level, because what's happening there is where you're going to get your greatest success if you involve the people who are on the front lines. And we involved those, those local youth directors, and Winterfest turned in to one of the big events of the Church of God, thanks yeah. to Tommy Madden and several other youth directors in the area who joined with him, and then it became an international. They're having international. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now, I mean, and look, it didn't come from up here. It came from down here. And so that was sort of the philosophy that I had adopted in leadership. And when we had the John Maxwell group to come in to evaluate our system, uh, he basically said, you know, as long as you're working from this pyramid level, you know, you're up here and everybody else is down here. It's like, uh, okay, the general overseer is up here and you've got executive committee, you've got department leaders, you've got state overseers, you've got district overseers, you've got pastors, you've got associate pastors, you've got youth pastors, music pastors, and down here, on, right on the, almost the bottom rim, ring would be lay people, and right below them are sinners. So the people that we're actually trying to reach are on the bottom of this pyramid. Yeah. So Maxwell and his group, it was one of the persons who worked with him, said, okay, Lamar, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to do my very best to flip that pyramid upside down. Yeah. I don't feel good sitting up here on the top. I'd rather be down here receiving messages as to what God is saying to the people that I'm serving. And that's, that sort of became the standard of leadership for me. And I wrote the book on charting the course in which I turned the pyramid upside down. And, and, and you and you made the theme of one of the uh, general uh, of the uh, general assemblies charting the course. I right? did. I mean, that was my theme. That was the theme that I chose for that general assembly: charting the course. That we have got to choose which direction we're going to take to reach the majority of the people. 
And that's also when the, this concept of globalization, of, of not seeing us just as a missionary outreach, but seeing us as a part of a worldwide church. Yeah. And that also sort of revolutionized what's going on, I think, in the world missions, is that we've got, church, we've got members in the Church of God more outside of the United States than we do inside the United States. Well, we have jumped in with both feet at the beginning of this podcast. Folks, you better buckle up because yeah. this is going to be probably unlike any of the other podcasts we do because it is round two. Yes, let's talk about that for a minute. Brian, why don't you tell the people what you did? Yeah, so um, upon, upon recording um, we We, we met with podcast, Dr. Vest mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the podcast, when we had things that could never quite be replicated right. um, and went to finalize the audio on our setup, uh, it the file corrupted yes. and we lost all the audio and basically knew we had lost it within three minutes of being finished. Yes. And Dr. Vest was so gracious to give us um, some more time with him. And we were so thankful that he uh, that he saw that as not the norm. Right. But the abnormality. Yes. And can we can we circle back to who set it up and who's the one who hit render when it crashed? Like who was that? Yeah. So that that that, um, that was I, not I think me. What Buck right? is, I think what Buck is is uh, <laughs> he hasn't had a lot of people in his life that would take ownership of their mistakes, <laughs> evidently. And so um, yeah. So that yep. that was that was a mistake on me. Um, I, I take ownership of that. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, since it, was... it since it's all my equipment that we're using. <laughs> hey, um, listen, it was no free. big deal. I just don't want anybody to get the idea that you corrupted me. Okay? <laughs> right. Oh, right. Of course, please, no. <laughs> if he was, if That's if you find him corrupted, it was not us. <laughs> yeah. Someone else is responsible. If okay. someone finds that corrupted, no. Doctor Vest. So we have some redundancies today on our recording, and we're jumping in kind of right out of the gate. There's a lady named Cheryl Batchelder. She was the CEO of Popeyes for just a, for yes. a while. When she takes over the company, one of the things she does, she talks about identifying the customer. As the CEO of the company, is the customer the person who comes in to buy chicken? Is the customer the employee? Is it the franchise owner? Is it the shareholder? For, for the general overseer, for the church of God, like in our structure, who is our customer? Is it, is it the pastor? Is it the state overseer? As a general overseer, who is that key person that if you identify and really hone in on, it changes everything? Yeah. Well, again, that was the whole idea of flipping yes. the pyramid. Because, again, I, you know, we always try to follow Scripture. That's always a good idea. Oh, yeah. And Scripture, Jesus tells us that we're to go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Yeah. So I start off with every creature, the sinner is sort of the top priority. We're to reach them. The second thing we're to do is to disciple the believer. And we've done a far better job at reaching the lost than we've ever done with discipling them. And so I felt like, okay, my first priority is to try to reach the sinner and disciple the believer. Okay, in order to do that, I've got several layers between me and them. So what I've got to do now is to spend time training these individuals, executive committee, department leaders, and state overseers, and state youth and education directors, to say that your primary idea is not to please us, but it's to please God and to reach these people. 
So how can we best help you? So it became sort of a two-fold program. Developing leaders to reach the center and to train and disciple people. And so that became the two-part. So what we did was focused on leader focused on reaching the lost, discipling, but we also focused on developing leaders. So we brought in specialists and we would have leadership teams with John Maxwell and other people who would come in to train our leaders. And all of these had an incredible feeling about your mission is to reach the lost and to disciple people. So if you take those two things out, you don't need a general overseer. You don't even need a pastor if you don't have people reaching centers and discipling people. But this has been the problem for a long time. My introduction into you was through Jim Rigsby, who's married to Gail, formerly King, yes. who is R. Edwin King's daughter. And I know that that uh, Edwin King uh, did a report and said it, I think, at General Assembly. One of the things that he was looking at the church said, uh, either he or the report said, I just know the quote, one of the things that was the problem with the church was we love crowds and we hate people. Yeah. No, that was, oh, a, wow, that was a part of the thing that, I mean, in fact, I even had when I was youth director in Maryland, Washington, D.C., I was recruiting counselors for youth camp. And I had one lady come up to me and, and I, she said, you know, I love youth camp. I said, well, why don't you come be a counselor? She said, I love youth camp, but I just can't stand kids. Oh and I thought, God. well, what in the world is this whole thing about? Yeah, it's exactly. about them. It's not about you. And what I found out, and, and again, when you make these kinds of statements, you have to understand you're not making a general statement on everybody, right. but you're making a broad statement that I found many people who felt like this is all about me. You know, I got to be successful. I got to get a promotion. I got to do this. And I'm saying, no, it's not about us. It's about them. And so that was the whole idea of inverting the pyramid, charting the course. Let's do what Jesus called us to do. Man, that's good. Where where do you think we we lose that that deep connection to that anthem? Uh, and again, this came out of some of the research, and it, and I can quote this because it was an article in the Evangel, and and the person who wrote the article was one of the one of the persons who did an evaluation of the structure. And it was basically like, you, you guys are never going to really be totally successful as long as you keep, keep looking at this thing of, of leadership by taking turns. Mm. And I, well, what do you mean by that? Well, every two years or every four years, somebody else comes in new and, and we can't go off of what this guy said. We got to come up with our own theme and we got to promote our own thing. And so you start you start moving up and down and in and out. And finally, the people out there get a bit confused. And sometimes they just decide to start their own mm -hmm. yep. training programs and things of that nature yep. if the church is not providing for them. Yeah. And I predicted this a long time ago. If we don't start preparing to train our ministers and to train the lay people, they're going to find ways out there to do it without us. And the point of it is that we are not just trying to build a large denomination. That's not our objective. Our objective is to serve the people God has put under our control. And, you know, again, this is, this is not complicated stuff. <laughs> this, 
<laughs> How hard was it for you as general overseer to try to make these things happen in what was at the time a four-year? I don't know. If you had asked limit. me when I was going through it, I would probably say that it was uh, sometimes tough. But uh, as I think I shared with you before, experience is a hard teacher. Experience yeah. gives you the test before you get the experience. And so I had to take the test first. And later on, I found out that there were a lot of people who didn't agree with it. But the rank and file, and at that general assembly, that was one of the greatest general assemblies that I ever attended because we had an open forum. Because the general overseer had always been required to go to that podium with a straitjacket, with Robert's Rules of Order wrapping you up yeah. so that you yeah. can't talk or you can't give an opinion. And so I got up there when I presented this whole thing of charting the course, and I got up there and said, look, many of you are pastors or your state overseers, and all I'm asking you to do is to give me the same privilege that you are given by your local church. If your local church doesn't ask you to give a vision, then you're not serving them well. So we're going to dispense. I am not going to call this session in order. I'm going to pretend I'm your pastor, and I'm going to tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart. And is this when you had, like, different ones, yes. like Mark Williams and, and Brian Cutshaw? Brian Cutshaw, several others. That got and up and said different pieces that of That got it. up and told different pieces because, again, you know, here's the thing also I learned about leadership. And I, I don't know where this is where you want to go or not, but leadership so many leaders go into a meeting or to meet their council or to meet their people with the plan already wrapped up in their hip pocket. And they lay it out and say, this is where I want to go. And what I found out is if you've got, if you've got intelligent people sitting around the table in that kind of a meeting, and you go in and say, look, really, guys, I really didn't need you for this. Here it is. I'm just laying this out, and I want you to buy into it. Their creativity is going to be turned into trying to pick holes in what you're doing because they've got to show that they can make yeah. contribution. Yeah. And that's the only way they can. If you've already figured it out, then why, why do you need us? So that's exactly I put that in practice. I went to these guys, met with them privately, met with them as a group, and met with them individually and said, this is my burden. And here's a section of it that I believe God has led you to be a leader in. Would you be willing to take this and develop this and present it at the General Assembly? Well, I was converting the tape the other day, and I, di I didn't get to hear all of them, but I just I was checking audio and making yeah. sure it was synced. And Cutshaw got up, and he was saying the Church of God cares. The Church of God is, and he started going through all that. And, I mean, it fired me up it was yeah. just in my editing bay. I was like, I just was like, wow. Yeah. It was it was amazing. So you had each of them. You took I didn't that present piece, it. I gave it to them, and then they went. I and let did... them have my idea. Man, that's that's. So... <laughs> when I say I let them have my idea, I mean I let them have the goal, the purpose. Yes. But it they developed it themselves. Right. So again, once again, this great idea didn't just trickle down. It bubbled it up. bubbled up. Do, do, do you ever watch Star Trek? Do you yeah, like Star I have Trek seen at all? It. Yes. Um, so you have Star Trek, the original series, and that's Captain Kirk, Spock, all those guys. 
And then later in the 80s, you had Star Trek The Next Generation, and that captain was Picard. Now, uh, I remember as a kid, you know, I was watching the reruns of Star Trek all the time. My family loved it. And then we started uh, watching T- what they call TNG, Next Generation, uh, in the 80s, and we watched it as family. And my dad said, after one episode, he goes, you know what the difference is between Kirk and Picard? And he says, Kirk hits the bridge, and he says, Spock, do this. Bones, do this. Uhura, do this. Sulu, do this. Do this, do this. He gives the orders, tells everybody what to do, and then they go do it. He said, Picard, the Romulans are there, the Klingons or whatever. They're facing some impossible situation. He does not bark out the orders. He always says options. He asks a question, one word, options. And then the first officer and the guy who's flying the ship yeah. and, the, yeah. and they all chime in. And then he will either go with one or take from all of them and, to, and come up with something even better if he had not had all of their expertise and of wisdom course. and their the, this 360 view. Well, I, I don't remember the second series. I only saw the first. Yeah. I actually felt like I got my ideas from Scripture. I felt like this was what Jesus did with his disciples. He had dialogue with them. Yeah. And, you know, the point that I've found out in studying Scripture is that Jesus answered very few questions. He asked more questions than he answered. That's so good. And so he actually would lead in conversation like, uh, who is my neighbor? Well, come on. What do you know about this? You've read the scripture. What do you think about it? So you sort of pull the person out. And so if you don't let other people who are involved in the process feel like they are creative, their creativity will be turned against you. And it's such an astute observation. Yeah. Yeah, creativity can quickly become like criticism. Yes. And, and the worst critics you can get are the best theorists and the best idea people yeah. because they're going to co- try to come up with an opposite. And this idea of looking at the options, absolutely. When I presented this to those group of people, they came up with other options that were far better than what I did. You know, Jesus actually never really spent his time giving answers it was yeah. always, tell me what you think about this. And then he would, he would respond in a way. And so, again, you know, I, I, I did this thing when I was in the youth and city department, started talking about, and you've got to talk about, I mean, think of this was sometime last century. This was, yeah. <laughs> this was several years ago about servant leadership. And that's the thing that always impressed me about Jesus was that he did not choose to be the, the ruler, to set himself up and and have everybody just to answer his questions. He, he came to the people as, some, as a person who said, I'm here to help you become everything that you can become. And so, you know, this thing of servant leadership. And, and again, people resented that because, well, I am not a servant. Well, I mean, what Jesus said, you're to be the servant of all. Yeah. And that's what he came to do. And so the whole idea for me was you know, was not some theory that I came up with. It was something that I thought I had learned from Scripture. So, okay. I think there are crisis moments when we can either do or we can teach. We can't do yeah. both. And so there is a moment for Captain Kirk to Absolutely. go, do this, do this, do this, go. But 
how do we, I do like what you're saying, this more of allowing these smart, intelligent, creative people, anointed people to help you, but how uh, to, to, to stand in their place and be able to bring to bear what they have, but how do you keep that from becoming consensus leadership? People might consider this to be consensus leadership. I'm not talking about consensus leadership. Remember, I said earlier, I want to let them have my idea. I mean, before I go to these individuals to talk about this, I've prayed it through as the leader. Yeah. I've fasted, I've prayed, yeah. I believe that God has given me the answer. Consensus leadership is not what I'm talking about. That's the weakest kind of leadership. Yes, it is. If you have to get everybody's opinion, it was like when I served as chairman of the board for the American Bible Society. We, we had to go through a, a, re, a restatement of mission. And it was obvious that there were people on the board who didn't approve of the new mission statement. So I said to the president, if we move forward with this, we're going to lose at least eight board members. He said, well, that's bad. I said, no, that's good because we're going to lose the eight that we need to lose that are holding this organization back. Mm. We lost seven. We didn't lose eight. So the point of it is at some point in leadership, I would say almost every leader is going to find a point to where you've got to choose who you're going to lose and who you're going to keep. Because if you have people that won't go along with what God is revealing to the body, and again, it's not that he just revealed it to me. It's like the majority of the people were saying, this is where we need to go. And so those who said, no, I don't like this. Guess what? They didn't get called back for the next meeting. I had an older pastor tell me one time, most churches are two funerals and one excommunication away from revival. (laughs) Well, again, I mean, obviously, and I don't mean that to be crass or hard. We try to save everybody. It's pruning, though, right? But it's pruning. And and the Lord has a lot to say about the pruning. If you want the, the tree to produce fruit, you're going to have to sometimes lose a few limbs to get the fruit that you need. So, Did you experience that in your time of, as leadership and as general? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you lose sleep over that kind of stuff? like, Or, or do you just say it has to be done? This is like, what's that like at that level? Probably I did lose sleep because, again, you want to reach everybody. But let me just tell you another conclusion, and I have somewhere all of these things sort of written down, and somewhere they're in the back of my brain. If you want to please everybody, you're going to please nobody. You can't please everybody. And so, yes, if people would say to me, I don't like this, I would have conversation with them to say, well, how could you improve it? And I got into, and I I mentioned this, I think, earlier, but I got into a discussion with one of the church leaders who didn't like what I was about to do, and he said, uh, well, you are the general overseer, and you can do whatever you want to, so go right ahead. And I said, no, wait a minute. I'm not doing this because I'm the general overseer. I am not the general overseer because there have been general overseers before me, and there will be general overseers after me. I'm doing this as Lamar Vest. I won't always be general overseer, but I will always be Lamar Vest. And so besides having a responsibility for the position that I may be appointed to or elected to or choose to go into, I'm going to surrender that position to somebody else, but i got to live with me the rest of my life. 
And so I have this set of principles that I do my very best not to violate. And I can't honestly tell you that at some point in my life I didn't violate some of those principles. But what I can tell you is this. I always knew what I did. (laughs) And I always had to repent. If you sort of set your goal and say, this is who I am. And, you know, I took Lamar Vest with me into every position. And the people often ask me, well, how do you get so much passion about the Bible Society? How do you get so much passion about National Association of Evangelicals, about being general overseer, about doing this at the seminary or at Lee? How do you get the passion? How do I get the passion? I don't get the passion from the job. I take the passion with me. My passion is to be who I am and what God has called me to be. And if I can't be that, I'm going to take the next bus out of town. You know, I asked you in our first interview, what, what, what are your hobbies? And you're, do you remember your answer? Yes, I do remember. What would you say? My hobby is having hobbies. Yes. Can I just tell you, I went home and told my wife this, and I said, I said here was his answer. My hobby is hobbies. I find something interesting. I do that thing until I master it, and then I move on to the next thing. And she said, oh, my gosh, that's you. (laughs) And I was like, I've never heard anybody say that before. But you will go from thing to thing because it presents a challenge or an interest or you want to learn or you want to conquer it or whatever. And then you move on to the next challenge, right? And so I think that that means that indicates there is a passionate some people in the world they may say it's competitive and perhaps that's right but I think it's more you're a passionate person and so you get passionate about this and you really enjoyed that but that season's over now what's next and that seems to pervade it even into your ministry yeah you know I went home after that conversation and told my wife what I said and she said that's that's you that's exactly right But again, I don't know why that came to my mind, but I I do know why it came to my mind, because I was talking with her a few days before, and she had seen a shelf that I had built to hang in my study. And uh, so, yeah, I said, well, that was one of my hobbies. I used to do woodwork, but I... My father cut cut his finger off, and I decided to move to something else. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I moved to one hobby to another. But I don't think that yeah, it's challenge, and I don't see the competitiveness of that. I think the curiosity for me, I mean, every test I've ever, ta- ever taken sort of says you're a very curious person. You've got to find out. You've got to know what's out there. You've got to see. People are saying this can't be done. And when I went to Lee College at the time as president, we had a situation that was not working with our enrollment. And the person in charge of enrollment, who was a good friend of mine, came to me and he said, Lamar, Look, I know what you're trying to do. I said, look, I want, to, I want you to answer every inquiry within 24 hours. And he said, we can't do that. It's just, it's just too much. Okay, let me get this straight. Are you telling me it can't be done or you can't do it? Yeah. He said, I'm telling you it can't be done. I said, okay, here's what you do. Any letter that lays on your desk over 24 hours, put it on my desk. I'd go in late at night and answer every one of those letters, lay them on his desk when he came in the next morning. He walked into my office and said, you know what? I think this can be done. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so a little show and tell along the way doesn't yeah. hurt. That's amazing. Okay, so yeah, you want, no, no, no. So we are really just—it's like time travel. We're we're going in and out. So there came a time when you were going to be appointed as the president of Lee College. Okay. And now I have heard the story uh, from him. He said it in a chat. Dr. Paul Kahn, who said that he wanted to be, I think it was at 84? 84. 84 is when you became president? Yes. Okay. He wanted to be president of Lee, according to him. He said, and I mean, he said it in a very humorous way. He was like, I wanted to be president, and they wouldn't let me be president. And they instead appointed you. Now, at that time, you were doing what? What were you doing? I was before? general director of Youth MCE. Okay. So you're, you're over the, the youth department for the Church of God. And I don't know that that's the obvious choice to Never, become the president of Lee College. Not the obvious choice. And so he wanted it really bad. He was burning for it. And then they wouldn't let him do it. They appointed you. And, and he said that he was so grateful for your tenure as president because he learned so much watching you and being with you that it prepared him to become president after you, your time was up. Can you talk about that? Have you heard him say that? Oh, yeah, I've he... heard him say that, and we talked about it earlier on because he's the one that I had talked to about him being the president, and, and to tell you the honest truth, if I had been on the board of trustees, I would have voted for Paul Kahn. I thought he should have been president. And that's why I recommended him as president when I was elected to the executive committee. Mm. Uh, because I felt like, you know, when I first went there and Paul and I had these conversations, I said, Paul, you know, people are going to know that you wanted the job. And actually, many members, most of the members, I would say, of the board really wanted him. And... and the fact is, I would have voted for him if I'd been on the board. And I said, but it's not going to work out that way, so let's kind of work together on this. And and so I asked him to be my vice president, and there's a whole story behind that. Yeah, I want to hear that story. Well, so you, I, went, you, know, I, again, you get on campus, and you go to his office. Yeah, but I, I just go to his office and I walk straight in. I don't talk to the secretary. And when I walked in, opened his door, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm the new president. Haven't you heard? He said, yes, but this is holy ground. This is the faculty territory. <laughs> My father, when he was president, didn't even come over here. And I said, well, I'm here to make an offer to you. I want you to be my vice, executive vice president, or I think you need to sort of take one of these other positions that you've been He'd been offered several positions at several places, so he didn't need a job. And, and, and I said, I want you to come be my vice president. And he did. And or you, leave. Well, I said, yeah, I, I think, again, it would be better for you to come and be my vice president. And if you don't, I think you need to leave and take one of these other jobs. Because, you know, I said, you and I are too close of friends that you're not, gonna, you're, you're not going to complain or you're not going to be an opposition to me. Uh, but I'm not sure that you trust me enough to be president that you're going to support me like you should. And, you know, I know that when even your dad was here, you were the loyal opposition. And when Dr. Hughes was here, I hear you also were the loyal opposition. And you, 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 you just will not oppose me. So, you know, if you can't oppose me, I need you to come work with me. And that's how we sort of got together. 
And when he came in to tell me that he was ready to accept it, he was teary-eyed. He said, I've been praying, and this is what I believe God wants me to do. And I said to him, okay, well, you, we need to get some, one thing straight here, because people are going to say to you, do you know what Lamar Vest is doing? He's trying to co-opt you because you know the school and you know the faculty. And they're going to say to me, Lamar, don't you know that he wants your job? And I, and I said, no, I can handle my friends. I can tell them, yeah, I know he wants it, and I'm going to do my very best to let him have it someday, you know, when the Lord's finished with me. But can you handle your friends? And so, you know, what happened was it, it was the perfect union. He knew the school. He knew the faculty. He knew, he knew all of the kinds of things that I didn't know. But, but you, I knew some things about the church and about structure yeah. and about leadership that obviously, from what he has said, he must have learned in that short time we were together. And so, you know, people ask me, what was my, what was your greatest success at Lee College? I said, it grew bigger when I left. And <laughs> that was such a mm, yeah. pleasure to me to see that a man who was rejected at one time now because of our relationship had become the man who did such an incredible job at Lee University, something that to this day I doubt that I could have ever done. So I felt like that, you know, somebody asked me, and I think it's on a video at Lee, somebody asked me, how did you feel, you know, about coming in, knowing somebody else wanted to be president, and he becomes the president, and the school blossoms into this university and campus, and I said, how many times in one's life do you get to be John the Baptist? <laughs> Preparing yeah. the way. What a great <laughs> quote. It, you know, yeah. for me, it, it it's, was my success. I, 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 I enjoy his success because I had a hand in it. Well, and he doesn't tell his story without mentioning you. And so that's, a, that's an important thing because just as the Bible says, some plant and some water. Absolutely. Everybody's got a different role to play. Absolutely. And, and the two of you, you said, already had a previous relationship. Oh, yeah. We, we, From where? We started out early. I was youth director in California, and he, he was a youth director, a youth pastor at Mount Perrin. And I came to Lee College for a seminar, uh, some kind of conference, and he was a speaker. And I was, I was really impressed with him, so I went up to him. And said, uh, Paul, I want you to come next summer and preach my youth camp in California. And he said, yeah, I'll do that. So we set the date. And I met with the, the council, met with the state overseer, because we had some individuals on the state council at that time who were very strict. And this was in the, you have to keep in mind, this was the days of the hippies in California. Wait a minute. Hold on. Okay. So so there was a, is somewhere in time... There is a youth camp, and the state director is Lamar Vest. Yeah. And the camp speaker is Paul Kahn. Somewhere in the multiverse. Yeah. Right yeah. now. Yeah. Like, there, you could yeah. have gone there, and what happened? You come out with three college credits from that uh, uh, no, youth not, camp? Not I mean, at all. I tell you what did come out of it. That's crazy. Because when I met with the council, they said we'd, we'd, the last youth director had some of these hippie looking guys coming in here <laughs> speaking in camp, and we don't want any of that. So by the time I'd seen Paul at Lee and the time that he came to preach the camp, he'd grown his hair all, all, right down almost to his shoulders. Oh, my gosh. So I met him at the gate, and we started to the luggage compartment, and, and I turned right instead of left. And Paul said, the luggage is over here. And I said, yes, but we're going over here. 
I said, where are we going? He sa I said, we're going to the barbershop. He said, are you going to get a haircut? I said, no, you are. <laughs> and you know what he did? He did. He got a haircut. I never got the sandals off of him, but he got a haircut. He never grew it long again. I don't know. I don't think he ever did. <laughs> I love he, that. He looks more like his father now. <laughs> you took his locks away. I, hey, well, I, you know, I, it'd be I funny. I told that in one of my first staff meetings with Lee, because again, they were wondering about how Paul and I were going to get along. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were, there was this kind of undercurrent, you know, what's going on and this kind of thing. And I said, look, this, this guy's going to do anything he can to help me. I even had him to get a haircut. <laughs> well, it was a great youth camp. Yeah. And, you know, the point is that that's been a lot of years ago, and I still remember some of the things he taught, taught to those kids. He was on target then, and he spent his career, he spent his career uh, giving his life to these students at Lee. What I know, I know he could have had, in fact, he walked away from a huge contract to be my vice president and served for a dollar a year. And really? so, you know, for anybody to tell me that he was not dedicated to this institution when he first became president, I had going to I had a chance in the last couple of years to spend some time with Dr. Khan, going to his office now that he's chancellor, and um, I, I made a request of him, and he paused, like I, I gave him my ask. He said at the end of the meeting, he said, "All right, no filter. What do you want?" from me, you know, and so I made my ask, and so then he responds by saying this, he said, he said, really, whether it's a virtue or a vice, I've lived my life through the lens of, is it good for Lee? That's it. And I thought, and man, did. to be, you know, for a person so clear-minded on what God's got for him, um, it must almost feel humbling to be so integral to, to a story like that. As, as, you know, yeah. California and the president, and wow. Well, you know, at this stage of life, having served in, as you mentioned, several different positions, I look back on it and ask myself, you know, where do I get the greatest pleasure? And my greatest joy and my greatest satisfaction are the fingerprints I have on people mm. who are doing so yeah. much for God today. And that's why, again, I look at, you know, Three general overseers, uh, Tim Hill, Mark Williams, Raymond Culpepper. Uh, I, they were youth directors. Well, Mark was not one, but he was a student at Lee when I was there. So I, 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 yeah. I mentored and talked, and, if you, and, and I've had each one of them to tell me, uh, you know, how much the mentoring meant to them. So wow. I had three overseers that I mentored. But I also had three general overseers who mentored me. Who were they? Ray Hughes, Cecil Knight, and Charles Kahn. Hmm. And Charles Kahn, when I was a youth director in Delmarva, D.C., invited me to speak at a convocation at Lee College. Wow. And that was the highlight of my life as a I youth bet. director. Never thinking that I would be president someday, but Charles Kahn... Uh, sort of developed a relationship. We developed a relationship. And even after he, he retired and his wife passed away, he would come to my house and would sit down with an album of he and his wife and the songs they listened to and the stories of their life and would share with me. And just to have those, those guys to pour into my life, I think gave me 
gave me the responsibility to say that I have to pour myself into the life of other people yeah. who will come after me. And that's, that's where I get the big joy. Tell us about growing up. So you were born, you were in South Carolina and about 14 years old, you were called to preach. Did you come from a ministry family? Well, <clears throat> I had a couple of great uncles who were Church of God preachers. And my grandfather was a pioneer uh, Church of God preacher. So they were, they were my heroes. Hmm. And my parents tell me that from the time that I was four or five years old, when people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to be a preacher like my, my papa. And so I grew up, not, my father was a clerk of the church. He was clerk for 30 years, a great layperson, a preacher's friend, and very devoted. And my mother, of course, a preacher's daughter. So I grew up in church and actually preached my first sermon when I was 14, 14 years of, old, of age. Got my credentials when I turned 15. Wow. Yeah. And it was the Church of God. It was the Church of God, of course, yes. Yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, there's an interesting story behind that. I preached in the downstairs small auditorium, and I went back to the church when I was elected as general overseer to preach a funeral. And an elderly gentleman came up to me, and he said, Hey, Brother Lamar, I got something I want to show you. And he took me out back to a little auxiliary building where the storage building, and he showed me this homemade pulpit. And he said, Do you remember this pulpit? And I said, of course, that's the pulpit I preached my first sermon behind. He said, well, when we remodeled the downstairs, some of the brethren wanted to throw it away. And he said, I said, no, Lamar Vest preached his first message behind this pulpit. And if he ever amounts to anything, we'll give it to him. <laughs> so, so I said to him, well, do, do you think I have made it? He said, I think you made it. So we put it in the back of the car. It's in my garage, and every once in a while I go out and still try it on for size just to remember where I came from. <laughs> so you're 14 years old. You preach your first sermon down in the basement. They wouldn't let, You weren't ready for prime time. No, yet. I was they not were... ready for prime time. <laughs> no. And so then uh, about 18 years old, you get married to Iris? Absolutely. Just right out of high school. She was my childhood sweetheart. Wow. How long were you all together? 42 years. 42 Okay, so you get married, and you immediately, you're, you're preaching. You're like state evangelist. I'm state evangelist and at so, 18. And so tell me about the early days of your ministry. Like, you're evangelizing, you're newly married, you're, I guess you start having children, right? Uh, yeah, uh, about 1959, it was in December, about a, uh, about a year and a half, almost two years later, we had a child. And so you evangelize for a couple of years, and then you start pastoring. Yes. Tell me about Lamar Vest, the pastor. What was that? What, what's he like? <laughs> uh, young, inexperienced, reckless <laughs> occasionally. Uh, but uh, the overseer had, call, had called me to come in, and I visited with him, and he said, uh, Lamar, uh, I understand that you might be interested in pastoring. And I said, well, you know, if it's the right church, I, I would be interested. He said, well, I've got two churches. And he named one of them. And he said, this is a growing church. It's, it's really mushrooming. It's really had good growth. Told me how many they were running. I don't remember. But he said, I got another church that we've had to put a padlock on the door a couple of times because of difficulty. And he said, I don't know what's there, what anything is there. 
we've opened the church back up, but there's just a few people. Which church do you, would you like to go to? And I said, I'm going to go to the one that you put a padlock on the door. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Maybe it's a challenge yeah. <laughs> that you mentioned. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I do know. I know what I said to him. He said, why? And I said, well, I think I can pastor, but I know I can preach, and I know I'm a good evangelist. So if I go to this church and it goes down on me, I'm probably all washed up. But if I go to this church, it can't go down. Right. The it's already it down. The only way it can go is up. And we grew. We had, we had good growth. Let me ask you this. In general, did preaching come pretty naturally to you? No. Really? No. Man, if you could, if you could, even, even now. Oh. No, no, no. Listen. No, no, no. No, let me tell you. The preaching is different. It's not the preaching, it's the shyness. Every one of these aptitude tests that I have ever taken shows me to be an introvert. You do not strike me as shy. Well, my father knew that when he, you know, he would say things like, Lamar can't even, he's so bashful he can't even lead in silent prayer. I mean, that was... Uh, <laughs> That's hardcore. No, I was, I was really, really bashful, really backward, and uh, laid back, a uh, little mischievous but uh, in school, but uh, a bit shy. And so standing up in front of the crowd, you know, the few people who were there on that night that I preached in that small auditorium, the downstairs, uh, I was scared to death. Wow. But uh, I have to tell you that people ask me, did you struggle? No, I didn't struggle. I felt as much anointing that night as I think I did the last time I preached or taught. And it dawned on me that I can't do this on my own. You know, I've, I've got to depend on something outside of myself. So, yeah, I, I've overcome a great deal of the shyness, in fact. But still, I mean, let me tell you how shy. If I walk into Walmart and see somebody that I know, I'm apt to turn the other way because I, I don't know what to say. And it's, but once I'm engaged, it's okay. But there's that still. So it's the buildup to the moment but once you start preaching it's the build up to the, the anointing takes over you're good and, it, and so does that mean that people drain you like i hear from like for me i'm i am not an introvert at all i'm a true extrovert i'm all the way over here on the scale yeah. and so social environments people lots of people that that jazzes me but other people the people drains them I left went last night after teaching a class and told my wife drove home and she said, what's wrong? I said, I am absolutely exhausted. It's like all of the air has been sucked out of me. And yeah, and so that, that's, that's kind of the, the thing I go through. And in fact, when I was elected general overseer and had to preach the next year, I went through... I went through an experience that was tormenting. You know, I prayed all that day, and it was, it was like, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I finally had to get to the place to where I said to my wife, I'm not even sure that I'm up to this, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. I mean, it, it was like pressure. Yeah, it's still, I mean, when, even when I was in high school doing revivals, it would be like maybe I'll have a blowout or something and not even 
get to make it. So it's once I'm there and once, you know, but I think, I think because God has given me certain gifts of communication and those kinds of things. Oh, for sure. That, that he had to teach me. Well, let me just tell you this. I have flapped my wings enough to know that I can't fly on my own. <laughs> you know? So, so my dependency on God in whatever I do is not partial, but it's, de- it's total. Yeah. And, so, that's and, wonderful. I just think there's going to be people, the people who know you personally will know this about you, but I think the... Yeah, my family knows. The, the, the vast majority of people looking at you would probably be shocked by that. So the first church, Padlock Church, for the shy evangelist, <laughs> it, it goes great? How did that go? Well, we had 11 in Sunday school. Praise God. My first Sunday. Yeah. So they showed up in large numbers to support the new pastor. <laughs> And it, it grew into the 30s and 40s and probably got up to around 50 or maybe even 60. But there was this Sunday school register board that some churches still have, you know, where it has right. record attendance, tithe, I mean, offering and number of attendance. And they had 149 that they had had a record attendance. Brother Busby was the Sunday school superintendent and so I went to him and said, Brother Busby, if and you the, And the letters, I think you told me this, they were yellow. Yeah, the, the 149, numbers. the record attendants were, were yellow. The rest of them were new white letters. And I said, that's really distracting. Can we get that off the board? He said, yes. I said, well, how can we do it? Break the record. So I don't know, two or three Sundays later, I'm preaching, and I get under that heavy anointing, and and I turn and see those yellow letters, 149, and... I turn around and I say, folks, you see that 149? Brother Busby told me that the only way we can get it down is to break the record. We're going to break that record by the end of next month. How many of you believe that? They started to applaud. Maggie Timms, I can tell you this because she's no longer alive, and she, she enjoyed it. Actually, when I would tell the story and she's there, she would enjoy it. Maggie Timms said in a whisper, almost a whisper, it can't be done. <laughs> And I stopped preaching, and I said, Maggie, what did you just say? She said, I said, it can't be done. So I said, okay, how many of you want to show the devil and Maggie Tim that we can break that record? (laughs) (laughs) They stood up and applauded. That's amazing. And we broke the record. And from then on, if I ever had a project to do, that's all I had to say. How many of you want to show the devil in Maggie Timms? She would smile and hold up her hand. She enjoyed, she enjoyed the publicity. That's great to have a so, sense of humor about yourself. Yeah. So it Maggie puts it Timms all in this light to know how shy he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and for him yeah, to be so bold. You guys have to check with my family if you, you know, because when I hear myself say that sitting here doing this, yeah. I said, nobody's going to believe that, that it's, it's true. There's that. That's great. So you uh, you go from that, uh, and suddenly you go from pastoring a few years to state youth and Christian education director of Oklahoma. How in the world did that happen? Well, after I finished, uh, after I did the pastorate at my first church, I, the overseer called me and asked me to move. I wanted to finish my college, and uh, I'd been attending college where I was pastoring the first church, and so I... Uh, I went to Clemson and organized a church there and uh, organized a church right across from the campus on a laundry mat. 
because I thought laundromat, you know, nobody washes clothes on Sunday. Found out all of the students did. So we had to find another place and so organized the church there. My district overseer was F.L. Muller, Frank Muller, and he and I became very close friends, and he took me sort of under his wings and guided me, actually called me, and he said, Lamar, I got some members I want to give you. And he talked to some of his members about coming and helping me start that church, which was incredible in those days wow. because the other pastors, some of the other pastors were complaining because we were 10 miles away from them starting another church. And so we became friends, and he was appointed as overseer of Oklahoma, and he called me and <laughs> said that he uh, wanted me to be his youth director. And so I went through this back and forth. You know, I'd organized the church. We had built a building. I'd only been there two years, and I didn't really want to leave, but I had told him that I would accept it. And on the way home, I got under conviction, and I said, you know, I... I told my wife, I just don't think I can do this. I don't think I can leave this church, just having organized it and built the building. So I, I, I talked to the overseer, and I won't tell you who he was, but the overseer of South Carolina at that time. I talked to him at the assembly, and, and I said, give me a few days to really think about this, and I'll give you a call once we get home and let you know whether I will accept the state of Oklahoma as youth director. He said, Lamar, don't worry about it. Go home. I'll be home a week. I'm going to spend a week, but I'll be home a week later. Call me. I'm not going to give your church away, and so don't worry about it. So worry about it, I did. I prayed. I sought God. I called his son to find out where he was. He told me where he was, his overseer. I called him, and I said, Brother Overseer, I've decided not to go to Oklahoma. I think I need to stay with this church. He said, Lamar, I told you, go home. I'll see you next week. Come to the office. And so I set an appointment with him, walked in. So he said, you're not going to go to Oklahoma's youth director, are you? I said, well, that's why I'm here. I'm not going to go. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to stay at my church. He said, what church? You don't have a church. I've already appointed somebody else. Oh, my God. I said, gosh. brother overseer, you, I stood up. You promised me. He said, look, son, I'm the overseer. I can do what I want to. Whoa. I said, okay, so what am I going to do? He said, you're going to go to Oklahoma <laughs> and make the best youth director they've ever had. I love the pointing. <laughs> yeah. That, I love that. Man, and I was about to say, oh, wow, this is the most gentle Tra uh, transfer from pastoring to state work no. that we've heard from all the overseers. No. Nope. Because that, but that's not true. No. When I was elected to a higher office and this overseer was appointed to another state, I'm the representative of the general church at that camp meeting and I tell the story. <laughs> and, and I turned around to the overseer and I said, uh, it's the greatest thing that any overseer has ever done for me. And I said, I don't know whether he meant to get rid of me or whether he thought I could be the best over youth director. And he shook his head and said, you'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Cutthroat to the end. <laughs> so, and you can't uh, tell so, us who that was, huh? I think he already did on the recording. Yeah, I'll tell you. It was No, I don't need to tell you. You, I don't want to get into name calling. Oh, that's funny, though. That's cool. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's a great story. Well, you know, again... Uh, I still, he's, he's passed on. Yeah. 
And I think he meant it for my good. I have now, I didn't like it to begin with. I tell you, I fumed. But you don't want to change it in your story, right? You know, this is the point. People say if you could go back and change things in your life, and I'm always saying, you know what? I kind of like the way I've turned out, so I don't think I want to go back and change right. anything. Right, because you pull out that thread, you, you, pull you out might that not thread. be Lamar Vest anymore. the whole uniform. And yeah. yeah, it was D.A. Biggs. You guys oh, okay. know D.A. Biggs? I know that he, name. He was a tough, rough, but he, he, was, he was a gentle giant. Yeah. And, you know, he, he did great favors for me. But I love him saying, you'll never, never know. know. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. In, my, in my heart, I want to grow up and be a, a Dr. Lamar Vest. In reality, I'm probably a DA. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Me too. Oh, man, that's you'll great. You'll never know. And that is where we're going to push pause until part two with Dr. Vest. Thank you so much for listening to In the Arena podcast. It's not the critic. Who counts? Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. Where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Who strives valiantly. Who errs, who comes up short again and again. Because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph? And at the worst, if he fails. At least fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.